you should have an outline that says he chose the nouns. He chose the nouns. So we're looking at Mark chapter 9, verse 9 to verse 13. Now the late John Stott said Christianity is a rescue religion. What did John Stott mean by this? Well, what John Stott meant is that Christianity stands apart from every other religion, every other worldview of life. Because Christianity is not about saving yourself. Christianity is about God reaching out to you through Jesus Christ. You see, the problem of the human race, the problem that all of us have as human beings, is that we have all rebelled against God. All of us. There is none who does right, not even one. The prophet Isaiah said, all like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. All of us are spiritual rebels against God. None of us put God first in our lives. I often say we enter this world uh, with a fist raised against God. We might say we enter this world with spiritual guns pointed at God. And that's why the Bible calls our rebellion sin, and it calls us sinners, even little ones. They enter this world as rebels against God. And the immediate consequence of our rebellion against God is that we lack peace. Our, we have no peace with God, therefore our hearts have no peace. We are all of us searching for lasting fulfillment in things that is a fulfillment that we never find. The heart of man and woman is never satisfied. And the problem with this, of course, is that not only do we lack peace in our hearts, our rebellion against God has ruined our relationships. We don't get along with our parents as we should and our children as we should. Wives are against husbands, husbands against wives, neighbor against neighbor. We have no peace among ourselves. The Bible says in Titus 3, verse 3, that all of us live being hated and hating one another. It's quite something, isn't it? So in the end, all of us, even those who claim not to believe in God, the atheists, all of us yearn to be rescued from our rebellion against God. Because there's no single person who's not looking for fulfillment or deliverance. We just differ where we're looking. All of us long for salvation. We long for deliverance. But the problem is that our rebellion against God enslaves us as well. No matter how much we try to live right, uh, we always find ourselves rebelling against God. That's why we never find fulfillment, because we're not, we can't reconcile ourselves to God. We are trapped in it. And because we are trapped in our rebellion against God, the Bible says all of us are now under everlasting punishment. That's where hell comes in. We are under that because we are enslaved by our rebellion. The Bible says we are without God and without hope in the world. So the only thing is that judgment awaits us. God is angry with each one of us. We are all in big trouble because we rebelled against God. Yes, God is loving and actually, because he's loving, because he loves us, he doesn't like what sin has done to us. And therefore, he's now angry at us because we have rebelled against him. That's the bad news. The good news 
of the Bible is that God is on a mission to rescue us from our rebellion against him. Christ, if you like, has come to restore you back to God. He's on a rescue mission. It is a seek and save mission. And the rescue mission of Jesus is recorded on every page of the Bible, but we see it even more clearly as we read the Gospels, the four Gospels. And we are going through one of these Gospels, which is Mark, and we see throughout Mark that Mark is about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. You know, I'm struck always by Mark 2, verse 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, if you think you're righteous, Jesus is not for you. But if you can admit that you're a sinner, if you admit that you need him, then Jesus will save you through his blood that is shed on the cross. You see, through Jesus Christ, all spiritual levels who let down their weapons against God, who come to him in repentance, can be welcomed in and given new life forever with Jesus. And this stuff never gets old. That's the good news of Jesus. I say it's sensational because he is the creator of the universe. He who made the whole world is reaching out to each one of us. And it's all on him. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? And this morning we are looking at a passage in Mark that explains how Jesus gives us life with God through his suffering for us. We are in Mark chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. And this morning I just want to make one point from this passage. Uh, just one point we are looking at. And the truth that this passage really is communicating to us is simple. It is this, that Jesus suffered willingly for us so that we can share in his resurrection glory. Every point word in that sentence matters. Jesus, himself who's God, suffered, crushed, if you like, at the cross. He did it willingly, not for himself, but for us. Why? So that you and I, if we surrender to him, can share in his resurrection glory. That's the only point I want us to look to. So let's look at verse 9. Let's see this truth unpacked for us. Uh, look at with me at verse 9 there. Now just give you a background prior to this verse, as you know. Um, Jesus and three of his disciples, they have been on Mount Hermon, on the mountain of transfiguration. There they have seen Jesus transfigured and he has displayed his divine glory. And we looked at that last Sunday evening, so I won't repeat it. And you remember, I hope you remember the truth we learned last Sunday evening. What the transfiguration shows us is that Jesus is the glory of God made visible and available to us. That's what we learned. So that's what we learned, and they, they were on the mountain. Now they are coming down the mountain, right? They are coming back in the real world. Jesus now appears no more, right? And the four of them are heading back to rejoin the others that they left at Caesarea Philippi. And we can imagine as the disciples are heading down, they are so radiant, uh, incandescent with joy, we might say, so radiant. They're like, wow, it's amazing what we've just seen. So joyful. And we, I imagine that Jesus is looking at them and he knows immediately that these guys can't wait to tell everyone about what they have seen. And many of us know this, don't we? We know the feeling when we have seen something wonderful or we've read something wonderful. We've been on holiday. We've seen something great. What do we do? We save it up, share it on Facebook or tweet about it or send it to someone on WhatsApp. 
it's a wonderful thing, and we can't wait to tell people about it. Usually, we even tell others before we tell our spouses, which, of course, is tragic. But <laughs> the reason we do that is because we're so excited about what we've seen. We want the world to know. And Jesus can see that this is ready to be shared on Facebook. And uh, Jesus has decided, no, 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 look, this story is not for Facebook. This story, we don't want everybody to know about this story. Because we, it runs the risk, if you share with the world, that it's going to attract many glory hunters. Right? So he pulls the disciples. You can imagine Jesus pulling the disciples aside for a word. He wants to speak to them to keep this on the hush-hush, as it were. Look at verse 9. And it says, as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now... As I read that, I am guessing that the disciples are puzzled with the words of Jesus. I'm imagining that if this was today, they would be thinking to themselves, look, we have the transfiguration on tap. I mean, this is great, right? We've put it on the mobile, it's on tap. We must call the guardian, I guess. You know, share this story with them. It's a big story, you know, the Messiah has come in glory. Now is the time to put the Romans back in their place. We have the proof. Jesus is God. We have it on tape. Why would this hush-hush? They must be thinking to themselves. They are puzzled, aren't they? Why Jesus would do this? And we see that in a moment. But to their credit, the disciples are loyal to Jesus. They don't fully understand the gagging order, uh, this privacy injunction Jesus has imposed, but they know Jesus means well. And that's a lesson for us in our Christian lives, isn't it? So we don't always know uh, why God does things in our lives, but we can trust him. We can trust him that because he's faithful, and therefore what he's asking us must be good for our good as well. Look at verse 10. They, they are loyal, they keep the matter to themselves. We read in verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, we read. But as they are keeping that matter to themselves, they are still puzzling over it. They're obedient even though they still have questions. Because we read, on, we read on verse 10, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They are wondering, what are this death talk about? What do you mean you're going to die? Which is what Jesus simply means. He's going to die and then rise. What is that about? Now, we have to understand why they are puzzled. Because some of you have experienced a situation where the doctor has perhaps given a loved one a terminal diagnosis, right? All of a sudden, they go to the GP, and the GP tells them, no, sorry, things look very, not, not, not very good. You might die in, in, in a couple of months or whatever. But then we look at how they look physically. It doesn't make sense. They look 100% well. What do you mean you have cancer? What do you mean she's got cancer when she looks? She's never been more energetic. She's never been more lively. You all know of situations like that, isn't it? What, you, what they're looking at and the reality, they can't square up. They cannot believe it, right? Jesus, they're looking at the disciples. Jesus looks okay. <laughs> but it's worse than that. Jesus raises people from the dead. He walks on water. I mean, they've never seen anything like that. And they've just seen God say about Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. In, in him is well pleased. And God didn't mention anything about death. Right? On the mountain of transfiguration. 
So the disciples are puzzled here. They can't put these two and two together. Who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus now is talking about death. If Jesus is so powerful, they know Jesus is so powerful he can prevent death. So what's going on here? And as I thought about that here, I, I, I thought to myself, look, we all struggle with opposite truth, isn't it, in our, in our own lives? We can, we can see something of the disciples in our lives. Why do I sin if Jesus truly lives in me? I mean, if you're a Christian, you've asked that question before. It's puzzled you. God the Spirit has taken residence in your hand, and yet you still struggle with sin. Some of you are probably asking, well, if I'm a child of the King and God has saved me, why am I still suffering like this? Opposite truth, isn't it? The truth is God has saved you. And yet there's another reality, which is you're suffering. And you're struggling to bridge the gap. You have these honest questions. The disciples have these honest questions. And we should be encouraged by what they do. Because, you see, they don't keep the questions to themselves. We should do what they do. What do they do? They go to Jesus. They don't pretend they have no questions. And I, I just want to encourage you. If you have questions about your Christian life, or you have questions about life, period, don't keep them to yourself. Take them to Jesus. And speak to people that can perhaps encourage you to take them to Jesus, to, to help you think through them, that people God has appointed, uh, or people God has just brought in your life. But take them to Jesus, because only Jesus himself uh, can deal with them, as the disciples do. Let's read on verse 11. So they, they've got questions, and they come to him with a question. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It seems what's happening here is that the disciples have, uh, have, have put on their computer, I guess, and they have turned to those dreaded YouTube videos. And perhaps on YouTube, they're seeing some self-appointed experts. There are so many of them on YouTube. And they're sharing theories about the Christ. I mean, if we're thinking of this at this time, that's what's happening. There are religious experts that, who are speaking to them about who, what the Messiah really should be. And these religious experts, the scribes, the, legal, the, the, the religious law scholars, are saying the Messiah won't suffer because Elijah will come first in glory. Okay, God will first send Elijah, and, and they're saying, look, the coming of the Messiah is very simple. God sends Elijah, Elijah comes in his chariot, you know, he left up in the chariot, he's going to come in a chariot again, because he never died, and once Elijah comes, well, the end of days is upon us. That's basically what they're saying. Look at Malachi. They have Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. Malachi, the prophet Malachi says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day, before the final day of judgment of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, the religious experts are saying Elijah is coming. When Elijah comes, the last day kicks in and the end of days. They are standing on good scripture. And the disciples now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, the disciples are aware of this and they have just seen Elijah appear on the mountain of transfiguration. So what would you be thinking if you were one of the disciples? You'd be wondering to yourself, isn't it? 
who at the end of days has arrived. We just seen Elijah up there. Fine, he disappeared, but I'm sure this is a prelude to his proper coming. And perhaps the scribes have something onto this. Perhaps they are right. There's no Messiah who's going to suffer. It's just Elijah coming, and Elijah's about to appear. But on the other hand, they're also looking at Jesus. They're looking at what he's been saying, right? And they're trying to reconcile these two things. Are the scribes right that Elijah is coming or not? Are they right that it's glory all the way? No death. Well, the answer Jesus gives them blows them away, doesn't it? Look at verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. In other words, the arrival of Elijah begins the time clock of the last days, the restoration of all things. Jesus agrees. He's saying that the scribes are right. But the problem is, he goes on to say, is that they have missed his arrival. <laughs> he has come and he's gone. Right? And the reason they have missed his arrival uh, is because the Elijah they're expecting, as I said, is an Elijah coming in a glorious chariot. Right? Uh, we don't know where they got the idea, of course, because Elijah went like that, right? And they have also missed it because they've been expecting Elijah, perhaps, to the original Elijah to return, or perhaps, if he's not coming in a chariot, to perhaps appear through another human being as a sort of desire reincarnation of some sort. Jesus said, God isn't operating like that here. Jesus is saying, no, Elijah has come because God has sent someone else to come, not the original Elijah, but somebody in the power and manner of Elijah. Not a reincarnation, not in a glorious chariot, but someone who comes to fulfill the life of Elijah. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, the life of Elijah was a living prophecy. It was a foreshadow of a life of someone else. And this person is John the Baptist. Elijah's life pointed to John the Baptist. Let's read on verse. Let's just jump to verse 13. Look at what it says on verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written. It should puzzle you, actually. I think if you're taking the scriptures seriously and you're reading them and you're following as you go along, and you know your Bible, you understand that it's very difficult to map across any prophecy related to John the Baptist. And that's quite obvious. And there is no single reference that says John is going to be, you know, cut in the head, as it were, uh, when, he, when, he, when he came. Uh, there's no prophecy leading to them. So what Jesus has in mind here is what I've just said, which is the life of Elijah itself was a foreshadow. In the same way we might say the Old Testament judges pointed to Jesus, the life of Elijah actually was a living prophecy that pointed us to the life of John the Baptist. And it is quite obvious because when you look at that, Elijah, we know Elijah that he was continuously being uh, chased by Ahab and Jezebel and, uh, and that, uh, the, 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 the woman Jezebel. And we see the life of Elijah the same. Elijah, you know, continuously persecuted by Herod Antipas uh, as a result of uh, the proddings, as it were, or the agings of his adulterous wife, Herodias. So when we look at the life of Elijah, we see that it very much points us to the life of John the Baptist. So that's what Jesus is saying. Elijah, think Elijah, think of him as a living prophecy pointing to John the Baptist. But there is more here, isn't there? Notice verse 12 to verse 13, and you have to read to see these verses carefully. Let's just read them. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. 
And now is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written. I hope as you read those verses, you immediately recognize that they are unique. They are another unique aspect of Mark. Because what we are looking at here is another of those wonderful Macan sandwich. Do you remember them? I mentioned them a couple of times. What do I mean by Mark and Sandwich? I reminded you earlier in Mark that Mark likes stories or statements that are sandwiched. So the statement of Jesus starts on a topic in verse 12, and then in the middle of verse 12, it is interrupted by another topic related to the Son of Man, and then Jesus goes back in verse 13 to talk about Elijah or John the Baptist. It's a sandwich. And the reason why the sandwich is important is because the outer part, okay, the outer topic frames the inner topic. In this case, the suffering of John, Jesus is saying, is the outer part. And it's pointing us to the middle. The middle is what's in verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words... Jesus is saying, when you look at the life of John, this is amazing, right? When you look at the life of Elijah, it is pointing us to John the Baptist. But when you look at the life of John the Baptist, the outer part is pointing us to the life of Jesus. That's the great truth here. When we look at the life of John, and how John laid down his life willingly, at the hands of a king, it is a living prophecy about Jesus himself who laid down his life willingly. And this is a problem, isn't it? The scribes have missed John, and therefore the scribes can't understand Jesus. To understand Jesus, you need to look at the life of John. And if the disciples want to know where Jesus is going, they just have to look at where, what has happened to John. John died willingly, and Jesus is going to lay down his life willingly. The key, the key word in verse 12 there is written. Did you notice it? It's actually in verse 12 and verse, verse 13. How is it written of the Son of Man? Verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And then he goes on to say, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Jesus is saying, look, the scribes are ignorant about what the scriptures say about my mission, or indeed the mission of Elijah. They don't know. They, they haven't read the word, the word of God very well. I have come because God has sent me here. But I've also come here willingly. I know what it is in it for me, as it were. I know how I'm going to die. Now, you see, this is quite important that Jesus has come willingly because sometimes we commit to something willingly, right? But the object or the outcome, right, or what we are committing to, we don't really know everything. I think of the, the fact that sometimes people who like running, for example, they can commit themselves to uh, running for charity, right? So, but they've never run before, right? They are willing to run for charity, right? Or, I don't know, 10K or whatever. But they don't know what is actually involved. They are willing, but they are not read up. They have not experienced that, of course. So their willingness is a bit uncertain, right? They are committing themselves without knowing the cost they are going to face. It's just that the goal is good, but they don't understand the cost. Jesus is not like that. This is not the case for Jesus. 
As God the Son, Jesus knew before he put on human flesh what it would mean for him to enter this sin-stained world and die on that cross. He knew before the world was made the cross intimately. And he came knowing the pain of crucifixion. But also remember that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Right? As 100% God and 100% man, the human nature of Jesus here is also fully aware of what is ahead of him. Because Jesus, as a man, has been reading his Bible. And we need to understand that. It's not just that Jesus in his divine nature he knows. Jesus knows what's coming ahead of him in his human nature. And that's quite important, isn't it? Because we say that although Jesus is fully God, 100% God, 100% man, he's living his life as a man. He's still God, but he's choosing to live as a man fully dependent on the Spirit of God. And he has to do that because Jesus has to go to the cross to die in our place. And what is amazing here is that living as a man, he fully knows what's coming because he's read the word of God. Right? He's read the word of God. Christ has observed the word of God and he knows in his human nature the terrible suffering that's waiting for him in Jerusalem. Jesus, for example, has read that a close friend will betray him. He knows that. He knows that people will spit at him when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows that soldiers will whip his flesh out for fun. He knows that the Jerusalem crowd will taunt him as he hangs on the cross. He knows that the divine hands, his hands, which made the world, will be pierced with huge sharp nails. He knows that the same hands that formed the universe, that flung stars into space, the same hands that designed and crafted each and every human being will be nailed to the cross of wood. And this is important, beloved, because let us remember that as we see Jesus descending down the mountain, this is our creator on his way to Jerusalem to be killed by people he created. The man coming down that mountain, this is the king of the universe, willingly choosing to die at the hands of his citizens. That man there with three men walking down those rugged cliffs of Mount Hermon, that is the father allowing himself to be killed by his own children. Jesus knows that, and yet he's pressing on to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows this, and he knows much worse, you see, because he knows that ultimately it is not the soldiers who will lift the hammer of Golgotha against him. It is his father. It is God who will study the cross to ensure Jesus is nailed on it. He knows that it is God himself who will Pour his wrath on Jesus for every sin that you've ever committed. Jesus knows that. He knows that the same father who has just said, this is my beloved son. On him I'm well pleased on the Mount of Ammon. He's the same father who pour out all his indignation, all his wrath on him when he gets to Jerusalem. On the cross, Jesus will not hear any voice from God. The earth will be silenced. 
the relationship that had existed in eternity past, for a moment, for a moment, will be mysteriously severed. Jesus knows this. He knows that. And yet he has chosen to go ahead and die for you and I. Jesus is suffering, going to the cross, willingly for you and I, to die for you, so that you can share in his glory. What does this mean for us here at Bexley? If you have listened patiently, and I'm thankful for that, what does it mean then for you? What do we take away from this passage? Well, I think it means three things I think you need to think about. The first thing that this passage is teaching us is that if you are a true follower of Jesus this morning, you must let the willing suffering of Jesus remind you of what a wonderful Savior you have. Beloved, this is how much Jesus loves you. We say Jesus loves me. I wonder whether we understand that. Of course we don't understand. But the cross says to us that Jesus does love us. And it is, a, it is a picture of what Jesus has done. Because the cross says Jesus has willingly taken on the wrath of God you deserve. He has done it willingly for you to share his resurrection glory forever. He didn't have to be loved. Such love the Redeemer has for you, for us. You know, Stephen Shannock says, the love of Jesus opened his breast to receive into his own heart the sharp urge of that sword which was directed against us. The love of Jesus opened his breast to receive into his own heart the sharp urge of the sword which was directed against us. It's almost like somebody was trying to shoot you and Jesus put himself forward to be killed Instead, beloved, as you sit here this morning, are you prone to doubting God? Are you at this moment feeling that the glass is half empty? Are you looking at your life and you're saying, I'm just stuck, I'm not going anywhere. This Christian life seems so difficult. Are you perhaps in a relationship that's just difficult and that relationship is weighing you down and... And you feel lonely. You may be married, but you feel very lonely. You are at work and you feel alone. Or perhaps are you worried about old age and what the future may bring? You, you're looking forward. You say, I'm just living one year at a time. And sometimes contemplating things like that can make us feel down, isn't it? There are many situations we find ourselves in, even as a church, isn't it? As we struggle forward, what this passage is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus slain on the cross for you, beloved. Because in Jesus, the floodgates of mercy are open for you and the fire of justice is confined in its flames. Jesus is keeping the wrath of God at bay because he has saved you with his own flesh and blood. In his body and of course in his blood shed on the cross. Beloved, the cross says to us, there is no sin that you ever commit that is so great, so great that it can eliminate the benefits of Jesus' suffering for you on the cross. If you have truly surrendered to Jesus, there is no sin you can ever commit that can cut you off 
from the love of God. Romans 8 verse 33 to 34 says this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God himself who justifies. Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who suffered. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Beloved, the cross is saying to you, the suffering of Jesus is saying to you, there is no longer any distance between you and God. Christ has suffered willingly for you. You are forever, no matter your situation, in the presence of the triune God. This is the gospel, beloved. That's the first thing he tells us, isn't it? We have every reason to be, and to put on a smile every day because the Father has sent his son. He made him sin who knew no sin for me. The second thing is that if you're a follower of Jesus, this passage is saying to us, you urgently need to realize that the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is important, now forms the template of your life. I'm sure you're tired of me making the point that I love stencils and uh, I like using them with Abigail quite a bit to help her draw with those stencils, those templates. With those templates, you can be effortless at drawing. I love them. It's just great. They remind me of when I was in grade one, when I'm using them, right? Well, I love them also because, you see, when I think of the life of Jesus, I realize the life of Jesus is our stencil. From the moment Jesus saved you, you are now in union with him. The benefits of the union have been appropriated. You are now united to him forever. And that means the story of his life is now the outline of your life. Just as Jesus had to experience the cross before the crown, you too has his very own. You must suffer before you put on the full resurrection glory. It's not because suffering ends your salvation. It doesn't. Quite the contrary. It's because you are saved. Because you are united to Christ. Because you are in union with him. You must walk where he walked. If anyone must come after me, he must take up the cross and follow me. First the cross for each Christian, then the resurrection crown. Beloved, there is a poisonous idea, and many Christians of all churches have been influenced by this. You know, if only I come to church every Sunday, God will bless me. My life will go well. They say believers, if they can do everything right, somehow they can minimize suffering. And they look at other Christians who are struggling perhaps in their walk that their faith is weak. Perhaps, perhaps these people are not reading their Bibles as much as they should. Or perhaps they are not studying. And those may be true. But that's not the reason for the suffering, beloved. We suffer because we live in the now and not yet. That is the pattern of the kingdom. It's the pattern of every Christian. The now and the not yet. What do I mean? It means in the now, all followers of Jesus are meant, are meant, listen carefully, they are meant to experience pain, death, and suffering. Because Jesus himself did. He's our stencil. And we are to experience these things. Indeed, Paul says, he who desires to live a godly life shall suffer persecution. 
In other words, he who desires to follow Jesus shall live out like Jesus. So in the now, there is pain, there is death, there is suffering. In the not yet, there is resurrection. Just as Jesus rose from the grave. We too will share in the age to come. We'll share the resurrection glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, one day there will be no suffering in your life. And maybe you suffer and you feel you're a second great Christian. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary, beloved. It is in your suffering that the life of Christ is being made manifest. It's amazing, isn't it? The very thing you're trying to avoid is the very thing that images the life of Christ in you. And the hope of the gospel is that one day there will be no weeping, no more tears, no pain, just an endless life of enjoying God, just us being on the mountain in transfiguration glory. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, if you're suffering in your life, beloved, know that God has not abandoned you. Quite the opposite. You are living out the very life of Christ as his follower. You are perhaps have never been more closer to God than you've ever been. Because in your weakness, the life of Christ is now flowing. So my encouragement to you if you're suffering or you're struggling in some area, keep your focus on Jesus. Let the truth that Christ has risen remind you that even now you share in the glory of Jesus. Because his life is flowing through you. And there is more glory to come. Finally, I think this reminds us that also the importance of us allowing the suffering of Christ to fuel our heart to willingly lay down our life for him. To live for him rather than for ourselves. You know, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14-15. to 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one, that is Jesus, has died for all. That is all God gave him. Therefore, all have died. And that means all Christians are really dead, right? Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who might live, as who now live in through the resurrection power of Jesus, might no longer live for, for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Beloved, let this amazing suffering of Jesus draw you into a deeper life, a deeper devotion to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pursue Jesus, beloved. Allow your suffering, your struggles to escort you into the presence of Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Desire Jesus. Serve Jesus. How can we, who for Jesus died for so willingly, how can I how can we live for anything else when we have such a glorious Savior? How can we find living for Jesus burdensome? We can't, isn't it? It is not possible unless we don't know him. Unless Jesus is still alien to us. But we do know him. His death and resurrection has given us new life. So I encourage you this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus, come to your Savior fresh. Overflowing with thankfulness in whatever situation you're in. And fix your heart on his suffering in your circumstances. Fix your heart on what Christ has done. And the more you keep looking at Jesus, 
the more you find strength to lay down your life for him, the more you want to live in honor of this amazing Jesus who willingly chose the nails for you. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.